Joel chapter 1, the righteous judgment of God against sin. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, O elders, and listen, all inhabitants of the land. Has anything like this happened in your days or in your father's days? Tell your sons about it and let your sons tell their sons and their sons the next generation. What the gnawing locust has left, the swarming locust has eaten. And what the swarming locust has left, the creeping locust has eaten. And what the creeping locust has left, the stripping locust has eaten. Awake, drunkards, and weep, and wail, all you wine drinkers, on account of the sweet wine that is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has invaded my land, mighty and without number. Its teeth are the teeth of a lion, and it has the fangs of a lioness. It has made my vine a waste, and my fig tree splinters. It has stripped them bare and cast them away. Their branches have become white. Wail like a virgin girded with sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. The grain offering and the libation are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn, the ministers of the Lord. The field is ruined, the land mourns, for the grain is ruined. The new wine dries up, fresh oil fails. Be ashamed, O farmers, wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field is destroyed. The vine dries up and the fig tree fails, the pomegranate, the palm also, and the apple tree. All the trees of the field dry up. Indeed, rejoicing dries up from the sons of men. Gird yourselves with sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Come, spend the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God. For the grain offering and the libation are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast. Proclaim a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near and it will come as destruction from the Almighty. Has not food been cut off before our eyes, gladness and joy from the house of our God? The seeds shrivel under their clods. The storehouses are desolate. The barns are torn down, for the grain is dried up. How the beasts groan. The herds of cattle wander aimlessly because there is no pasture for them. Even the flocks of sheep suffer. To you, O Lord, I cry, for fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness and the flame has burned up all the trees of the field. Even the beasts of the field pant for you, for the water brooks are dried up and fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. Amen. This prophecy of Joel is dated likely to the time of King Joash from 2 Kings 10 and 11. King Joash, 2 Kings 10 and 11, and this would be about 835 to 796 B.C. 835 to 796 B.C. Essentially, 800 B.C. is the time of this prophecy. This would have also been the time of Elisha the prophet, the successor of Elijah in the book of 2 Kings. In 2 Kings 1 to 13, we have the ministry of Elisha the prophet. Joash 
was just a boy. King Joash was just a boy, about seven years old, when he was the king. Obviously, the seven-year-old king was not making the decisions of the land, but formally speaking, he held the seat. He held the throne. He did. So what was happening when young Joash was just a boy, seven years old? The elders, the political elders and even the religious elders and the judges, the priests, they were the ones making sure that the country was moving along until the king was old enough to make his decisions. So this is likely the time of Joel, this prophet here. This, this is also probably why in verse 2 he addresses the elders and not the king. The reason he didn't address the king, the king was just a boy. In that time, in the time of Elisha, there was a famine of seven years according to 2 Kings 8 verse 1. 2 Kings 8 verse 1 and also 2 Kings 4 38. Um, 2 Kings 8, 1 to 6, and 2 Kings 4, 38. There was a famine in the days of Elisha. And a seven-year famine, according to chapter 8. Seven years long. It says here in verse 1, Joel, the son of Pethuel. We don't know who this Pethuel was. There are at least 14 Joels in the Old Testament. 14 of them, and most likely to keep him separate and distinct from others, he's called the son of Pethuel. Perhaps Pethuel was a well-known man. Maybe he was a noble, a nobleman. We don't know. It doesn't say. But it does make a distinction between this Joel and other Joels in the Old Testament so that we not confuse them. The only other major Joel that people might know is one of the sons of Samuel, Samuel the prophet, in 1 Samuel chapter 8. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, Samuel the prophet, he had two sons, and one son, his name was Joel. 1 Samuel 8, 1 to 3. And it came about when Samuel was old that he appointed his sons judges over Israel. Now the name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second Abijah. They were judging in Beersheba. His sons, however, did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after dishonest gain and took bribes and perverted justice. This obviously, Joel, the son of Pethuel, is not Joel, the son of Samuel, because this Joel is righteous. The son of Samuel was wicked. And what is it that Joel the prophet prophesies here in chapter 1? He's prophesying of utter devastation because of the sins of the people. The people's sins has wreaked destruction throughout their whole land. Nature, the plants of the field, and the animals, the beasts, they're all suffering because of man's sin. This is what Joel describes here in chapter 1. He'll describe it some more in chapter 2. Man's sin brings the curse of God. Such an appalling curse this is, verse 2 says, Hear this, O elders, and listen, all inhabitants 
of the land. Has anything like this happened in your days or in your father's days? Nothing like this has happened that these elders can remember. That's how bad it is. The elders, the political elders, and perhaps also the religious elders, but certainly the political elders who are in charge of the nation while the king is still young. They can't remember. These would be old men, 60, 70, 80 years old men, who would have a long history of experience as to what has been going on in their nation. They haven't seen anything like this. They haven't heard of any kind of destruction like this. In their lifespan or in the lifespan of their fathers. Now, one might say, didn't locusts devastate the land of Egypt? Yes, but that was temporary. That was in Egypt. In this case, it's likely for one whole season, if not one whole year, that these locusts are devastating the land of Israel. So it's a greater devastation in terms of it being longer. There are more locusts involved than in Egypt, more kinds of locusts involved than in Egypt. And that would be Exodus 10, 12 to 20, if you want to compare. Exodus 10, 12 to 20 for the devastation of Egypt. And one more distinction here has to do with it being judgment on Israel. That's the irony. Egypt, they deserve to be destroyed because they worship idols. But Israel, don't they know better? Even though they know better, they don't do better. They don't obey what God says. And that's why this is so appalling and calls for their attention. The elders, but all the inhabitants of the land, that is, the aged and the young, the men of rank and the men of low esteem, it doesn't matter. They're all corrupt people. Everyone's wicked from top to bottom. Everybody. Worthless before God. Then he says in verse 3, Tell your sons about it and let your sons tell their sons and their sons the next generation. This description of what has happened, why is it that they should be telling their sons and their grandsons about this? What it, why is it that they should be telling their sons and grandsons? So that the sons and grandsons not repeat the offense. So that they not do the very same thing. Here's an example of this. In Exodus 10, God said something similarly. Exodus 10, verse 1. Exodus 10, verse, we'll read verses. One to six, Exodus 10, one to six. Then the Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may perform these signs of mine among them. And that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson, how I made a mockery of the Egyptians and how I performed my signs among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. 
And Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go, that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your territory, and they shall cover the surface of the land so that no one shall be able to see the land. They shall also eat the rest of what has escaped, what is left to you from the hail. And they shall eat every tree which sprouts for you out of the field. Then your houses shall be filled, and the houses of all your servants, and the houses of all the Egyptians, something which neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen from the day that they came upon the earth until this day. And he turned and went out from Pharaoh. For them to witness it, and then to teach their children about the judgment of God, the terrifying judgment of God. And even God says in verse 2, how I made a mockery of the Egyptians. You think you can overcome God by your sin? You can't. I'm going to make a mockery of you, he says, the unrepentant sinners. So if the sons and the grandsons take heed, they avoid being a mockery. They avoid being that. We note that it's also incumbent upon Christians to teach their own family. Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. We'll read verses 1 to 4. Ephesians 6, 1 to 4. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with the promise, that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. And fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. The fathers are supposed to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Teach them the ways of the Lord. That's just like Exodus 10. And the children are supposed to take heed to it. They're supposed to take heed, listen, obey their parents that it may be well with them and that they might live long on the earth and not die like the Egyptians or not die like Israel in the time of Joel, the prophet. Verses 4 to 7, Joel 1, 4 to 7, he describes utter devastation, no relief from the destruction After one wave of destruction, then another wave of destruction comes until they are completely obliterated. Verse 4, what the gnawing locust has left, the swarming locust has eaten. The first locust gnaws away and does what it wants until it's ready and are full, satisfied, and moves on. And then the swarming locust comes and eats what's left over. But that's not enough. And what the swarming locust has left, the creeping locust has eaten. More devastation. And what the creeping locust has left, the stripping locust has eaten. Four kinds. Four kinds of locust, one right after the other, ruining, destroying the whole countryside. This is what happens. God punishes and people don't wake up, so he punishes more. 
and people don't wake up, and he punishes more. They still don't wake up, and he punishes more until somebody repents. But still, if they don't repent, then the punishment. Five, he calls on the drunkards to awake. Why? Because they became drunk, they fell asleep, but it's time to wake up. Awake, drunkards, and weep. Wake up and weep. Weep and wail, all you wine drinkers. Why? On account of the sweet wine that is cut off from your mouth. Why would sweet wine be cut off or unavailable to them? Because the vineyards are not producing fruit. There's no rain or the insects or both are wreaking destruction on the vineyards. And if there aren't any vineyards producing grapes, then one can't produce sweet wine, new wine, aged wine, no wine, nothing. And therefore, they have nothing. The drunkards usually celebrate and make merry with their excessive alcohol, right? So they made merry, and now God's saying, it's time for you to weep and wail. He reverses the joy and brings mourning to them because they won't repent. If they won't repent based on their own determination to repent, if they don't repent, then God's going to force them to repent, at least superficially by weeping and wailing. Woe is me, I can't get drunk anymore. Verse 6, For a nation has invaded my land, mighty and without number. Its teeth are the teeth of a lion, and it has the fangs of a lioness. Who is this nation? It seems that Joel by saying nation, he is personifying these insects. He's calling this, these hordes of insects a nation or a people. Let's see how he does so later. I think by the time we get to chapter 225, it'll be clear that he's calling these hordes of locusts nations or peoples or armies, foreign armies that are invading. Um, mighty and without number. Uh, chapter 2, Joel 2 and verse 2. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, as the dawn is spread over the mountains, so there is a great and mighty people. There has never been anything like it, nor will there be again after it to the ears of many generations. Who are these great and mighty people? 2 verse 11, 2 11. And the Lord utters his voice before his army. Surely his camp is very great, for strong is he who carries out his word. The day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome, and who can endure it? And finally, verse 25. Then I will make up to you for the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the creeping locust, the stripping locust, and the gnawing locust. 
my great army which I sent among you. He calls these insects, my great army which I sent among you. They are the people or they are the nation that he sent to wreak destruction. And also, if you like to compare it, uh, ants and others are called people or folk, F-O-L-K, folk, in Proverbs 30, 24 to 31. Proverbs 30, 24 to 31. Let me just read a part of that passage to illustrate. Proverbs 30, 24. Four things are small on the earth, but they are exceedingly wise. The ants are not a strong folk, but they prepare their food in the summer. The badgers are not mighty folk, yet they make their houses in the rocks, so forth. See how even here they are compared to people, ants and badgers. Now he says in verse, verses 6 and 7, Its teeth are the teeth of a lion, and it has the fangs of a lioness. It has made my vine a waste and my fig tree splinters. It has stripped them bare and cast them away. Their branches have become white. These trees have been, have been completely ruined. It's as though a lion and a lioness have pounced on the prey, and the prey had nothing, no power to withstand the lion. That's how much they were overwhelmed with destruction. Verse, tw- uh, verse 8. Wail like a virgin girded with sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth, the grain offering and the libation or drink offering, are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn the ministers of the Lord. The field is ruined. The land mourns, for the grain is ruined. The new wine dries up. Fresh oil fails. Be ashamed, O farmers. Wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field is destroyed. The vine dries up, and the fig tree fails. The pomegranate, the palm also, and the apple tree. All the trees of the field dry up indeed, Rejoicing dries up from the sons of men. At the beginning in verse 8 and at the end of this paragraph, verse 12, he speaks of rejoicing or joy being removed from them. The virgin. The virgin, because the bridegroom is gone. Notice he calls the people he describes the people like a virgin. Why would he do that? He's reminding them of the reality that he threatened this to them. He, he threatened that literal virgins would be engaged to a man, but because of warfare, their men would be taken away from them, enlisted in the military, fight and die in battle, and the women would be there unmarried. And naturally they would be mourning. They'd be weeping and wailing. Deuteronomy 28, Deuteronomy 28, verse 
30. Moses had threatened this many years ago. Deuteronomy 28, 30. You shall betroth a wife, but another man shall violate her. You shall betroth a wife. You shall engage a wife, but another man shall violate her. Who would the other man be? But the foreign army coming to invade and raping the women, the victims of the conquered country. And in that way, the people generally are described as though they are a devastated virgin whose bridegroom is no longer with her. They can't get, even get married because he is taken away. Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 6. Jeremiah chapter 6, verses 9 to 15. Jeremiah chapter 6. And we'll see this reference to women or wives in verse 12. Jeremiah 6, 9. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they will thoroughly glean as the vine the remnant of Israel. Pass your hand again like a grape gatherer over the branches. To whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? Behold, their ears are closed and they cannot listen. Behold, the word of the Lord has become a reproach to them. They have no delight in it. But I am full of the wrath of the Lord. I am weary with holding it in. Pour it out on the children in the street and on the gathering of young men together. For both husband and wife shall be taken, the aged and the very old. And their houses shall be turned over to others, their fields and their wives together. For I will stretch out my hand against the inhabitants of the land, declares the Lord. For from the least of them, even to the greatest of them, every one is greedy for gain. And from the prophet, even to the priest, everyone deals falsely. And they have healed the wound of my people slightly, saying, Peace, peace, but there is no peace. Were they ashamed because of the abomination they have done? They were not even ashamed at all. They did not even know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall at the time that I punish them. They shall be cast down, says the Lord. From the oldest to the youngest, male, female, the, the priest and the common people, it doesn't matter, they're all wicked. And therefore, they can't rejoice. We also notice in verses 9 to 12 that all the crops and those who service the crops, the farmers and the vine dressers in verse 11, and those who benefit from the crops in the service of the Lord in, verses, in verse 9, the priests, the ministers of the Lord who take care of the house of the Lord, who receive these offerings from the people, right? All of them. Nobody has anything. Nobody has anything. It's all gone. It's all destroyed. Does this, and even the rest of the chapter, does it not remind us of the curse that Adam brought on us in Genesis 3, 17 to 19? God said that he would eat by the sweat of his brow the plants of the field. He was told 
that thorns and thistles it shall grow for you. Not a, a ripe and abundant harvest, but it's going to be devastated like this. Man's sin does this. Genesis 3, 17 and 19. Also in Romans 8, 18 to 25. Romans 8, 18 to 25. The apostle explains how the creation has been subjected to slavery, to corruption, to futility. Creation has been subjected to corruption, slavery, futility. Why? Because of man's sin. And also in Genesis 6 to 9, who suffered because of man's sin? Everybody did. Even Noah and his family did because they had to live in the ark for a year. Yes, they were delivered, but they couldn't live their life the way they normally did and the way they did afterward, right? Everybody suffered. The people, the rest of the world, all perished in the flood. Most of the animals perished. All of the vegetation perished. Correct? Why? Because of man's sin. There's a connection between man's sin and the curse that God's, God brings on the world. 13, verse 13. From 13 onward, we're going to see a call to repentance. 13 and following, a call to repentance. 13 and 14 specifically. Gird yourselves with sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Come, spend the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God. For the grain offering and the libation are withheld from the house of your God. Who is supposed to lead in repentance? Here, sackcloth, wearing sackcloth, weeping, wailing, the ministers of the altar, the priests who serve in the temple. They are supposed to lead the people in repentance. They are the ones. They are the ones who know better. They are the ones who handle the law. They are the ones who study the law. They are the ones who transcribe it and transmit it. They are the most knowledgeable of the people. Correct? The priests from the family of Aaron and the Levites from the tribe of Levi, they are the ones who are the most knowledgeable, should be. But they failed. And so God calls them to repent first. It's like James 3.1. James 3.1. Let many of you, my brethren, not become teachers, for as such we shall incur a stricter judgment. A stricter judgment for those who teach the people. Also, 1 Timothy 4.16. 1 Timothy 4.16. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things. For as you do this, you ensure salvation, both for yourself and for those who hear you. You ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you if you are faithful to the teaching. <clears throat> That's why Joel preaches against them, calls them to repent. Even he started the book that way with the elders, the elders and the priests. We also notice in 13 that what they need is withheld from them. 
they need to offer sacrifices to God because God commanded them to do it. But they can't. It says in 13, grain and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Even in verse 9, the grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. Withheld or cut off. Why? Here we have another reversal of circumstances. When the priests do not teach and conduct the services of the Lord properly, when they don't put a stop to corruption, then God puts a stop to the corruption by preventing the corruption from happening. Because if the grain offerings aren't coming to the temple, how can they practice the corruption of the grain offering? Right? What we find is when a man will not stand in the gap, God will stand in the gap and prevent it from happening. In the book of Malachi, Malachi chapter 1, the people, the priests specifically, were despising God and God's sacrifices. Malachi 1 We'll read verses one, uh, 6 to 10. Malachi 1, 6 to 10. A son honors his father and a slave his master. Then if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my respect? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? You are presenting defiled food upon my altar. But you say, how have we defiled you? in that you say, the table of the Lord is to be despised. But when you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you present the lame and sick, is it not evil? Why not offer it to your governor? Would he be pleased with you? Or would he receive you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? But now, will you not entreat entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us? With such an offering on your part, will he receive any of you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the gates, that you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from you. The priests are rebuked because they would not put a halt to the corruption in the worship of God. God says, I just wish there was somebody who would just shut the gates. Don't bring these worthless offerings here. Just shut the gates and stop making a mockery of my worship. Why do you come and do this when you don't really mean it and you don't do it the right way? Don't worship me if you don't mean it. Further call to repentance in verse 14, Malachi 1.14. Consecrate a fast, proclaim a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. They are now supposed to gather together the priests, the elders, all the inhabitants of the land. Everyone assemble at the temple, at the house of the Lord to cry out to him in repentance Everyone should repent in sackcloth, in ashes, in prayer, in fasting. Verse 14. It's easy to feast 
It's hard to fast. It's hard to fast because we think we deserve to eat. We think we deserve to survive and to live. It's hard to withhold food from ourselves. That's how much pride wells up in us. But when we are called to fast, it forces us to contrition. It forces us to humility. It forces us to think about the goodness of God to give us food. And it forces us to think about our own sin and what we really deserve. We deserve to be parched and um, famished because of our sin. So fasting reminds us of those things, reminds us of who we are before God. A couple of examples of fasting. The first one we see from Ezra chapter 8. Ezra 8, 21 to 23. Ezra 8, 21 to 23. Ezra the priest and scribe of God lived in the land of Persia, Babylon and Persia first, Babylon then Persia. He lived there and now he's returning to Israel. And on his way, on his way back, at this river Ahava. Notice what he does. Ezra 8.21 Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey for us, our little ones, and all our possessions. For I was ashamed to request from the king troops and, a horse, and horsemen to protect us from the enemy on the way. Because we had said to the king, the hand of our God is favorably disposed to all those who seek him, but his power and his anger are against all those who forsake him. So we fasted and sought our God concerning this matter, and he listened to our entreaty. He listened to our entreaty because we fasted in sincerity and truth. That's the assumption. Another place, a famous passage, is 2 Chronicles chapter 7. 2 Chronicles chapter 7. Solomon prays a prayer of dedication when the temple, the first temple, was built. 2 Chronicles chapter 7. Verses 11 to 22 comprise this prayer, an answer to the prayer. Uh, 11 to 22. Actually, I should say, this is the answer to the prayer. It's not the prayer itself. The prayer was in the previous chapter, chapter 6. So when God answers, we pick it up here at verse 11. Thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord in the king's palace and successfully completed all that he had planned on doing in the house of the Lord and in his palace. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon at night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. If I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or if I command the locust, if I command the locust to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people, today we would call it pandemic, um, if I send pestilence among my people and my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray, 
and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, and will heal their land. Now my eyes shall be open and my ears attentive to the prayer offered in this place. When he says in 14, humble themselves and pray, in the Old Testament, often to humble oneself is the same as fasting. To humble oneself is the same as fasting. And that's what he's saying here in 2 Chronicles 7, 14. And fasting is not just lip service kind of fasting. It's not just a show. It's not a show. That's not the point of fasting. The fasting is there to remind us of our dependence on God. We are weak, we are sinful, and we need God. And we have to give up our sin, reject our sin, and fast before the Lord for Him to hear our prayers accompanied by fasting. How urgent is this? Well, He's already threatened devastation, widespread devastation. Look at 15. This will answer the question, how urgent. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and it will come as destruction from the Almighty. How urgent? The day of the Lord is near. And the day of the Lord for unrepentant sinners is a day for which they say, alas. Alas for the day. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. The day of the Lord is only a happy and joyful, hopeful day for repentant sinners, not unrepentant sinners. Since Joel is primarily dealing with unrepentant sinners, he says that the day of the Lord is near and it's going to be destruction for you. Don't be thinking it's going to be a happy time for you. It's going to be a sorrowful time, a destructive time. It's near. This is akin, Joel 2.15 is akin to John the Baptist and Jesus Christ in Matthew 3.2 and Matthew 4.17, who both said in their first public words, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. At hand means near. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The physical destruction would come whenever God ordained it. But what if the people died? Where would they go? They would have to meet God, meet the judgment of God. In that way, the eternal salvation that they are jeopardizing is near. (coughs) Whenever there is Judgment pronounced that people may or may not imminently experience the physical destruction. But if God takes their life away, immediately they face Him. In that sense, it's near. That's what John meant. That's what Jesus meant. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Joel says the same. It's near. 16 to 20. Has not food been cut off before our eyes, gladness and joy from the house of our God? Of course, that's what I've been saying. It's been cut off. Don't you see it? Is his point. 
The seeds shrivel under their clods. The storehouses are desolate. The barns are torn down, for the grain is dried, dried up. Both from seeds and crop, there's no seeds and there's no crop. And even the storehouses are worthless. They are in disrepair because they are not used. Nobody's around. Humans aren't there. The farmers aren't there. The harvesters aren't there. So everything is in disrepair. 18. How the beasts groan. The herds of cattle wander aimlessly because there is no pasture for them. Even the flocks of sheep suffer. The animals are suffering. Why are the animals suffering? They also have to eat from the ground. They also need the protection of men. The domestic animals need the protection of men to take care of them. Otherwise, otherwise the wild animals will prey on them. The lions, the wolves, the foxes, they'll all prey on the domestic animals. Even the beasts are groaning. So 19 and 20. To you, O Lord, I cry. Where else are we supposed to go? It says in 14, and cry out to the Lord. He's the only deliverer. He's the only savior. Nowhere else should we go. Cry out to him. For fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness and the flame has burned up all the trees of the field. Even the beasts of the field pant for you for the water brooks are dried up and fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. Fire. This fire is, even if it's a figurative fire, meaning if there's no rain and you're in the heat of summer, the ground will be like fire. It will scorch you. Just as it is scorching all of the vegetation and causing the animals, even the wild animals, to suffer because they have no creeks, they have no streams, they have no rivers, no lakes, no ponds, nowhere to get any water. God is the provider, and now God is the withholder. Of course, the plants and the animals didn't sin. But we make them suffer because of our sin. And then we suffer because they suffer. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.